everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. We have been talking in this last couple of episodes uh, about the subject of pornography and you'll recall if you've listened to the first two episodes in this series we've thought first about the prevalence of this problem noting that we are in an unprecedented time in human history where in the last 15 years really with the explosion of online video media all of us face this temptation of graphic video pornography uh, all around us. Literally, we carry around the device in our pockets uh, uh, in a way that we've never faced before. Uh, we've thought about the prevalence of the issue, we thought about the seriousness of the issue, the uh, costs to us personally and relationally in our relationship with God through Christ and our relationships with other people, whether you're married already or whether you're not married and may of course be married in the future. And we've thought, tried to think a little bit about why this is such a serious issue. Um, and what I want to do now in this podcast and the next episode is to move on and start think practically about how to start tackling it. We often fail to realize that scripture contains such a wealth of resources, not just in relation to identifying particular sins, diagnosing them, showing us what's wrong with them and showing us righteousness and what's so good about it. But it also contains real practical wisdom about how to deal with those sins and temptations. That is to say, it contains practical guidance about how to structure our lives in such a way that we will actually be able to fight temptation. And it strikes me that this is a necessary in many areas of life, but perhaps particularly uh, as I've talked to people who have been struggling with this temptation, temptation to sexual sin and pornography in particular, that they lack no motivation to deal with it. Uh, they absolutely want to get rid of this sinful temptation. And yet at the same time, it's like, well, how do I, how do we get, how do we overcome this? Um, because something happens in the human heart in its weaker moments, which means that we fail to live up to the godly aspirations that we have in our wiser moments when we really, really do want to deal with this sin. So here, perhaps like nowhere else uh, in our portfolio of aspects of our lives that we want to bring under the rule of Jesus Christ, we have need for practical down-to-earth guidance about what actually to do. And where we find that is in the book of Proverbs, where we find it all over the scriptures. But I want to focus our attention, if I may, on the book of Proverbs, because it seems to me here, and particularly in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, we find all kinds of quite subtle, but extremely powerful, practical guidelines for how to deal with this uh, temptation. Let me make a few introductory comments about how we read the book of Proverbs. There are many ways to read the book of Proverbs. Of course, it's a Christological book. Uh, it's a book which testifies to the wisdom of the coming son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, it's a deeply practical book written for the individual Israelite, Israelite families, Israelite communities, and therefore for the true Israel, those who are found in Christ Jesus by faith. And so it's a book for us to find wisdom in. And one of the things that the book of Proverbs does is to personify various abstract character traits. You think about what the book of Proverbs uh, talks about. It doesn't so much talk about laziness. It'll talk about the sluggard personifying laziness in a character that is then given concrete and vivid characteristics. Folly is personified as the fool and wickedness is is 
personified as the wicked. You see what's happening. All these abstract traits, uh, characteristics of people are turned into archetypal people who bear that characteristic in concrete ways. And so wisdom isn't just talked about as wisdom, although it is. It's also the wise, the wise man, the wise woman. Gullibility is personified as the gullible. Mockery is personified as the mocker. Senselessness is personified as the senseless one. And so what we find then when we read the book of Proverbs and we're trying to find resources for dealing with sexual sin and sexual temptation, what we find is that various forms of sexual temptation and sexual sin are also personified. And in particular, lust and its associations are personified as the adulteress or the forbidden woman. There are two different um, characters who fulfill different aspects of this concrete personalization of these sexual sins and temptations. The adulteress and the forbidden woman. You read through the first nine chapters of Proverbs, you find a lot about the adulteress and the forbidden woman. And the, the key is that we can then work back the other way from these concrete personifications of the problem to understand the underlying abstract problem of lust itself. And so um, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking through these first nine chapters and seeing how um, the book of Proverbs speaks about them and therefore what we can learn from them. Now, what we'll notice as we do so is that the scenarios in which uh, the adulteress or the forbidden woman find themselves depicted in the book of Proverbs vary wildly. Um, and all of them correspond to late Bronze Age or early Iron Age culture. Uh, but of course, what that means is that we have to then do the hard work of trying to in embed that in our culture. Um, we don't so much have town squares and markets marketplaces and people standing at their doorway as we walk past. We might have uh, other easy access means of obtaining illicit, ungodly, sinful sexual gratification, which don't even require us to leave uh, the privacy of our own rooms. You can see what I'm talking about. And so we can then read Proverbs in that way, taking seriously what it says and how it personifies things in the ancient Israelite context, and then reading ourselves back in there, bringing with us the culture that we have so that we can see what it's saying to us. And so the question is, how does Proverbs represent the particular temptations of the adulteress and the forbidden woman? And how crucially, here's the thing, how specifically in concrete terms are we to respond to that? Now, just one other a quick note before we begin. Uh, the forbidden woman and the adulteress are both female characters. And that's, of course, because the book of Proverbs is um, written from uh, father, to, father to son. Um, it's by King Solomon, or at least much of it is uh, from the pen and from the mouth of King Solomon. And it uh, therefore represents the words of the wise man to his son who would grow up to be wise. And that's the reason why the uh, predominant language of the sexual temptation is feminine in orientation. And of course, there are reasons why the, the masculine character is, is um, front and center in the early parts of Proverbs specifically, because it's Israel is God's son, Jesus is God's son. We are all male and female sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But what that also means, of course, is that if you're a woman listening to this, and we've seen in the previous uh, episode or two, 
that pornography is not just uh, a sinful temptation that uh, uh, lands at the doorstep of men, so to speak. It's also something to which, statistically speaking, it looks like women uh, are also prone, uh, perhaps not in such great numbers, but certainly in great enough numbers to worry us. If you're a woman watching this, to a certain extent, what you have to do is just to invert the sex of the imagery. Um, that's not what you do generally throughout scripture, but it's perfectly legitimate and right and appropriate in this context for all the obvious reasons. And I apologize if I uh, forget to make the necessary adjustments every time I'm talking about it. I hope you'll forgive me and uh, be able to uh, kind of hear what I'm saying from the other perspective, um, so to speak. Okay, right. So without further ado, having got that picture in mind, what we're trying to do, get practical with the book of Proverbs. That's how we should read Proverbs. I've got a bunch of practical things I want to talk through with you. And I think I'll get through about half of them this time. And we'll save the other half for the following episode. So here goes. Number one, don't believe the lie that it doesn't matter. Don't believe the lie that it doesn't matter. This is uh, one of the lies that creeps in with almost every temptation that we have an opportunity to stew over and to um, think about, to reflect upon, to nurture. You know, some sinful temptations arise in a flash and we have to resist them in a moment. Others are the kinds of things that brew steadily in our minds. And as they're brewing, one of the things that we can kid ourselves into thinking is that, yeah, this isn't really such a very big deal. Let me tell you, it is a very big deal. And the book of Proverbs has a very characteristic way of describing what kind of a big deal it is. I'm actually just going to work through some of these texts with you. So it may, may take a while. I hope you'll find it's worthwhile. I'm thinking about the depiction in Proverbs chapter 7, where you've got this lengthy description of the seductive speech of an immoral woman here described as a prostitute, dressed as a prostitute in, in chapter 7 verse 10. Wily of heart and loud and wayward, her feet don't stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner she lies in wait. And you see what's happening. It's like everywhere you turn, you find a temptation of this kind. Can you see how you, we are to... Uh, take the concrete context of uh, ancient Israel and think, how does this, uh, what's the equivalent situation in which we might find ourselves? Um, and in verse 13, suddenly she seizes him and kisses him with bold face. She says to him, I have to offer sacrifices today. I've paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I found you. And you've got this really long seductive speech. Um, uh, and verse 19, verse 20, my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey you know what you've got here is the the sense of reassurance don't worry don't worry no serious consequences could come of this no consequences could come of this at all my husband's away he's on a long journey how's anybody going to find out and you see what what's happening is that just as this woman is appealing to the short-term uh, visceral hormone driven emotions of a young man so sexual temptation appeals in a similar way to all of our short term visceral uh, desires which if we're not careful and mindful we will succumb to now, what's really striking then is that her speech ends, and in verse 21, um, the wise man, Solomon, steps back and actually describes what's going on here. With seductive speech, she persuades him, and her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. 
as a bird rushes into a snare. Can you see what's happening? You've, uh, this um, temptation which the young man was told is not, it's nothing, it's just, a, it's just you and me, nobody will ever know, and then we can all forget about it. It's just a fling, it's just a, just a thing, it's just a one-night stand. He does not know that it will cost him his life. That's what it will cost us. That's what it will cost us if we succumb to this kind of sexual temptation. He's not talking about um, the physical life of the young man, of course. He's talking about the life of the ox or the stag that's caught in a snare. But that's the seriousness of the impact that it will have on the young man who succumbs to this temptation. I mentioned in a previous episode, this will ruin you. This will ruin us if we don't stand up to it and deal with it and fight it, this temptation. We have to do this. And so scripture represents that so vividly. I'm actually struck by something I've mentioned before, which just as um, a side note, this is outside the book of Proverbs. You remember, uh, some of you who have been at All Saints for a while will remember I've talked about um, the narratives in the book of Genesis, which, apart from all the other things they describe, also describe a long catalogue of different forms of sexual unfaithfulness and ungodliness. The book of Genesis is a spectacularly intriguing book because it contains so much. Uh, and besides all the, the obvious stuff that it contains that we might all think about, and like the, the narrative of Adam and Noah and Abraham and so on, and, and the patriarchs, what it also contains is pretty much every kind of sexual perversion on the menu. And if you just think through um, the narratives that you'll be familiar with, Lamech and his polygamy and his boastful posturing to his wives and everyone else's polygamous pretty much without exception the sons of God taking the daughters of men in Genesis 6 Genesis 9 it looks like Canaan is guilty of some kind of prurience uh, in relation to his father Noah lying down in the tent you've got Abraham with Sarah, Sarah and Hagar and the whole kind of mess that results from that the men of Sodom Lot and his daughters Judah and Tamar the rape of Dinah you've got Reuben sleeping with his father's concubine what's his father doing with a concubine in the first place uh, Jacob um, and so on, all uh, guilty of a whole catalogue of sexual sins. And then besides the overt sexual sins, you've got the other kinds of dysfunctional failures of what ought to be the blessed and wonderful relationship of marriage. Adam abandoning his wife and remaining silent in the garden while she's tempted by the serpent. Abraham uh, saying to Pharaoh that his wife is actually his sister because he's worried for his life. Uh, again and again and again and again, you've got the failure of marriage and its replacement with some kind of deviant sexual indulgence and then who do you have at the end of the book who stands firm against that the one man in the book who's a lead character who doesn't succumb to some kind of significant failure of this kind Joseph and of course, you remember in, in um, uh, Genesis 39, he's faced with probably the most dramatic uh, instance of all of the gripping temptation towards sexual infidelity with Potiphar's wife um, in, in Genesis 39. And you remember what he says, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Here you've got a young man, handsome in appearance. You've got to imagine strapping young man, maybe in his 20s, and this woman, his hu hu husband's away, and who would know? And he's the man who resists this temptation at considerable personal cost, it turns out. Right, now you think of the book of Genesis as a whole. Who is the man through whom God saves his people from ruin and destruction? 
So of course it's Joseph. Joseph is the hero of the latter chapters of the book of Genesis, from chapter 37 onwards, notwithstanding his uh, youthful uh, over-exuberance, you know, perhaps it wasn't entirely prudent to tell those dreams to his big brothers in quite um, such a self-gratifying way, but by the time he gets to adulthood and later in life, he is the wise man, he is the one through whom God works, the one whom God is with in prison and in Egypt, through whom God saves the people of Israel and the people of Egypt from starvation and death. So what does that tell you then about this issue of sexual fidelity? What it tells you is, you read the book of Genesis, if you had nothing else in the world to think about, all you have is the book of Genesis, what you come away with is, if I want to be the kind of man through whom God is going to change the world, if I want to be the kind of woman through whom God is going to change the world, I need to be sexually faithful like Joseph. Joseph is the hero of the narrative from a human standpoint. Joseph is the one whom God uses. And if the narrative tells us nothing else, it tells us that. And so there you are, I've got another, if you like, another motivation to uh, drive us to take this issue seriously. Um, just before we um, uh, move on, just to think about another issue of motivation at this point, uh, one or two folks have spoken about uh, the significance of shame in relation to this sin. And of course, there's a great deal of shame associated with sexual sin. And I've indicated previously, there's a sense in which this is right. We should be ashamed of all our sins, not least this one. Uh, there's a sense in which shame can be misplaced. If you've repented of a sin and it's in the past and forgiven and dealt with, we should have no shame about it, properly speaking. Regret, of course, but not quite shame. And of course, the danger of shame is it stops us taking this issue seriously because we it becomes a form of embarrassment and personal humiliation. We don't want to talk to anybody about the things we're ashamed of. And so that then creates a cascade of further problems down the road. Um, really what we need to do is to face up to this issue. But more than that, shame, well, think about what shame is. Shame is the God-given, holy response to a sin that is actually a problem that we've not dealt with. Don't waste your sense of shame. If you're feeling ashamed of this sin, well, remember that human psychology being what it is, you probably won't be feeling ashamed of it so much in a week or two or three. Use the motivation that's created by that sense of shame now to resolve, to put in place some of the things that we're going to talk about uh, in the next few minutes and in the next episode. Uh, shame, like anything bad, actually comes from something good uh, we'll talk about this perhaps in the next episode. Um, and uh, that good thing, the sense of I ought not to be like this, I ought to be a righteous man, a holy man, I ought to be a righteous woman, a holy woman, that, that good thing can drive us towards faithfulness and righteousness. So don't waste your shame in striving to be like, as we seek to strive to be like Joseph, the kind of men and women who are actually going to be used by the living God to make a difference in the world around us. And this is the way to go about it. Okay. So that was quite a long um, first practical point. Maybe we, we really will take two episodes to get through all this, but we'll see. Um, second, stay off the slippery slope. There is this myth, and it's well, more than a myth, I don't want to call it a myth, it is a destructive um, lie that enters our minds at too many 
uh, on too many occasions that just a little bit of something will be enough to satisfy me so that I don't need to go back for more. Scripture represents all sin quite differently. Uh, we are to keep away from even the start of temptation because slippery slope is actually a very apt metaphor for what Scripture says about what happens when sinful temptation gets a hold of us. You just, it doesn't get easier to pull yourself back from more sin having indulged a little bit. So if you are watching this and you've never engaged in any watching of pornographic material, well, God be praised, first up. Second, don't get started. Just keep clear. Take whatever steps you need to do or you are already doing to safeguard yourself from ever uh, engaging with any of this material. And this is the kind of thing that uh, Proverbs also talks about. And let me just share a couple of um, texts with you. Think about Proverbs uh, 4.13 and following, um, where Solomon says, Keep hold of instruction, do not let go, guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, do not walk in the way of the evil, avoid it, do not go on it, turn away from it and pass on. Just listen again to how he emphasizes again and again and again don't even get started don't enter the path of the wicked don't walk on it don't and then repeatedly exhorting his son and therefore all of us avoid don't go on it turn away from it pass on and this applies both to um, staying away from a temptation that we haven't yet succumbed to and getting away from a temptation that we have succumbed to. It never gets easier to avoid sin just because you've tasted a little bit of it. It's much more like drinking salt water. Uh, drinking a little bit just makes you more thirsty, just make, increases the craving for more and more and more. And it'll never be the case that you can satisfy the beast within by feeding it a little bit of raw meat in the hope that it'll go away and feed somewhere else in future. It never will. Stay off the slippery slope. Number three, practically speaking, uh, when you're thinking about how to deal with this sin as with uh, any sin, one of the helpful things to do is change whatever habits or patterns of life or circumstances tend to lead you towards the strongest temptation. Just think about it for a second. Uh, if this is a sin that you have uh, succumbed to and been uh, engaged in before or have been tempted to before, where precisely and when precisely have you found those temptations? Certain situations, uh, certain times of day, certain days of the week. Is it evenings when you're a bit tired after work? Is it Saturday, Saturday mornings, nobody else in the house? When is it precisely? And if you can identify the circumstances, maybe different kinds of circumstances, when this particular temptation uh, is a problem, then change those circumstances. Whatever the circumstances are, change them. Let me share with you a couple of um, texts in Proverbs which um, uh, highlight this issue in, in different ways, and then I'll, we'll talk about some just practical outworkings of this, what it might look like. Um, notice first up, uh, Proverbs 2, and the first five verses, highlight something that I've said on uh, a number of occasions before. Uh, change is possible for us, 
but only if we are so determined to pursue it that we're willing to make the kind of changes that are necessary. Um, Solomon does not uh, suggest to his son in Proverbs that it's going to be really, really easy to change your life. And here are you know five simple tips to transform your world. He doesn't say that at all. Rather, it's much more about uh, a diligent, committed pursuit of wisdom, which is obviously the maturity and faithfulness and godliness in every area of life that we truly need. It's that and that alone which will actually change our lives so that our lives are, by the Spirit's grace, more pleasing to Christ. Let me show you in um, Proverbs 2, the first few verses. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. See what you need to do. Receive it. Treasure it. Make your ear attentive. Listen. Incline your heart. Pray and seek the Lord so that you genuinely want the wisdom and righteousness of which Scripture speaks. Verse 3. Listen to how how we are to strive for this insight and wisdom and understanding by which we can live. Verse 3, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Who is it? Who is the man, the woman, who finds the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. He's the one who strives for it, searches for it like hidden treasure and lost silver. The one who seeks it, cries out for it, raises his voice. You've got this picture of somebody in the street walking around shouting, crying out for wisdom. It's a pretty, really kind of graphic picture. And what it speaks of um, in more uh, abstract and personal terms is the deep-seated longing to change. And therefore of the willingness to make whatever practical changes are going to be necessary in order to bring those changes about. You know, you say to someone, for example, okay, let's think of a practical change that might be relevant here, right? There is no good reason I can think of why any teenager uh, and anybody who's tempted to pornography, anybody single, probably, given the prevalence of temptation to pornography, needs to have their smartphone in their bedroom at night. None. And the reason is obvious, right? Because here you are, lying in bed, tired, liable to wake in the middle of the night, tired, drowsy, um, less able to fight off the obvious sinful temptations. And there's the device on your nightstand. Well, there is absolutely no good reason why that needs to be there. And if you have children and they have a smartphone, it needs to not be in their room at night. And when you say this to them, they're going to say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but what about, what about, I need an alarm clock. Well, buy an alarm clock. $5 will get you a digital alarm clock, which will tell you what the time is, wake you up in the morning and not expose you to this temptation to be looking at pornographic material in the middle of the night. But you see what's at the heart of that. The issue is like, how badly do you want this? You see, somebody says, well, yeah, well, I kind of need my smartphone in the middle of the night just in case I you know, need to make a phone call at two in the morning. Okay, if you're the sort of person who works for the emergency services and you need to get a phone call two in the morning, maybe you're the exception. But for most of us, that's not the case, is it? But the temptation really is to make the kind of vacuous excuses, which really are just that, vacuous excuses, because we don't want it enough. We're not seeking for purity like silver and searching for it as hidden treasures. We don't cry out for it because, to be honest, it's a little bit inconvenient. And $5, well, you know, $5 is quite a lot of money for an alarm clock, really. <laughs> Change whatever circumstances are causing the problem. I remember an old friend of mine um, 
uh, preacher from him. I learned a, a lot in my early days as a minister. He mentored me as a preacher. I remember him preaching a sermon. I forget what, what the text was, but he was talking about lust. And in those days, um, pornographic movies, as in videotape movies, were the big source of temptation for the audience he was talking to. I remember him saying, look, if your TV is a problem, throw a brick through it. And everyone was like, really? Really? It's an expensive thing. <laughs> yeah, really expensive. But not as valuable as your holiness not as valuable as your purity. So whatever circumstances you need to change to remove the obvious sources of this temptation, change them. And please don't come back to me or anybody else with the kind of empty-headed excuses that, uh, well, it's just a bit inconvenient. You know, you'll find a way if you really want it. The things that we really want, we find a way of getting. You get similar themes emerging elsewhere in Proverbs, Proverbs 4, uh, verses 5 and 6. Um, I'll just read it and then you'll see what I mean. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Don't forsake her. Here, wisdom is personified as a female character. The word wisdom actually in, in Hebrew is a feminine word. And so there's a kind of uh, correlation there. Now, do not forsake her. That is uh, the wisdom that we need. Wisdom, as you know elsewhere, just like uh, folly and uh, lust is personified as a woman. Uh, well, she, this faithful, godly, mature, wise woman, don't forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. So she will keep you. Wisdom will guard you. Um, she will stop you turning away from the words of the living God, but only if you get hold of it and don't forget and don't forsake. See what Solomon is saying? It's just not enough for us to make some kind of token gesture uh, broadly in the direction of, well, you know, I kind of resolved in my heart not to do this anymore. Um, we've all had sins and temptations uh, besetting us that we've succumbed to, having previously resolved in our hearts not to indulge them. So there's no good reason why that's going to be enough here. So again, um, uh, change your habits, change your circumstances, change whatever is necessary. Sit down and work out when is it exactly that I face the strongest temptation towards lust and towards pornography and change whatever is necessary to change to remove that source of temptation. So um, certain locations, certain times of day, um, uh, after you've done certain things, on your own in the evening, at the weekends, whatever it is, try and work out what circumstances you're in when the temptation is strongest and change them in whatever way is necessary to remove that temptation from you. Okay, well, I think probably we've done enough for the time being. We've got um, four or five more uh, points that I want to pick up and I'm just going to jump straight into them in the next uh, podcast um, which uh, Lord willing will release in a week or so um, I think that'll do us for now uh, as ever if you want to talk more about this um, then give me a call uh, or drop me an email at all saints uh, and I'm happy to meet up or talk um, confidentially and privately about it whatever you do don't do nothing if this sin or frankly any other is a problem for you but I think that'll do until next time uh, God bless you and bye for now. Mm -hmm.